you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7, when I begin reading this morning, I'm going to read verses uh, 39 and 40, and then I'm going to go back to, to verse 10 and read through verse 14, and then immediately following that, I'm going to read Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Hopefully, it'll make sense when I finish today why I did that. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, as always, we are so grateful, Lord, for this opportunity, for the privilege we have to gather together as believers, to come here, Father, in the name of Christ, to bow before you, to worship you. Father, to acknowledge your greatness, to thank you, Lord, for your ongoing presence in our life, to thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation, to thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven us of all of our sin and unrighteousness, and that, Father, we have a place reserved for us in heaven. And Father, we thank you so much for that. And ask now, Lord, as we continue, Lord, to show you our respect, we do so, Lord, by opening your word, by reading what is here, and by studying and meditating on the truth that is given. And so, Father, we ask for your help in doing this. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Then backing up to verse 10, it reads, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. Not I but the, Lord. the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is, in a, who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not divorce him. And then in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now we have talked about in some detail about the instructions that Paul has given in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to remind you that when it comes to those who are divorced, uh, that we need to have compassion for, for those who are divorced. You may not be aware of all the things that have gone in, on in uh, the dissolving of that marriage, and we don't want to treat those who are divorced harshly. We know that uh, a lot of individuals are shattered by such things. But as Christians, I think we do better now than we used to. It used to be in churches that if an individual was divorced or in the middle of divorce, they were treated by many people like they had some kind of a disease. And that's not a good thing. Now, we're not, we don't want to go to the other end of the extreme and somehow celebrate what's taking place. But sometimes what happens is under the guise of love, many within Christianity have abandoned any concept of right or wrong in divorce and need pretext of dealing with divorce according to the boundaries established in the scriptures. So I want to take the rest of the time today and kind of develop that idea, meaning that when we read through the passages on divorce and uh, marriage and remarriage and all those things that are in the Word of God, I, I want us to look at 
what it is that we are thinking about when we look at that. Not just understanding the details of what has been said, and we've, we've gone through that, but what is our attitude, what is our approach to the scripture? What is our approach to the word of God and then applying the word of God to the way that we live and to the way that we think? Remember in the book of Romans, chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we need to ask ourselves a question, and that is this. How did it happen? How did we as believers get to a point to where we have abandoned biblical convictions about divorce and issues related to sexuality, the family, and the home? Not every Christian has done this. Many Christians have done this. Many denominations have done this. As a whole in our country, it seems that Christianity has moved away from these convictions. Oz Guinness said this, In the 1960s, we saw the growth of an extremely strong and subversive feminist view which taught that the home and family are ways of oppressing women, that personal fulfillment and career must come before one's marriage, and the needs of children, that housework and child care are demeaning, that it is a waste of one's talents to be a full-time homemaker. When we talk about feminism in this context, we're not dealing with maybe the issues of same pay for the same amount of work, and I know there's a whole lot of issues with that, and making sure we understand even that correctly. But we're talking about these things in particular, where there was a mood that began to infiltrate our country, and very much so began to uh, influence the way that the church as a whole, the way that Christians think about life, the way we think about marriage, the way we think about the family. And these things that began back in the 60s, uh, the idea that if a woman was to marry and stay in the home, that was society's way of oppressing women. The idea that um, a woman should, if she wants to be equal with men, needs to put career first and her family second. That somehow if a woman was to care for the home and care for her children while her husband worked, that somehow that was demeaning to her as a person, as an individual. We need to remember that those ideas did catch on. Our society was influenced and embraced many of these, maybe not wholeheartedly, but by degrees. And there are many Christians who were influenced in this way. The way we talk, the way we communicate to people, the way we form our political ideas, who we vote for, all influenced by these things. I believe that this has had a very devastating effect upon the family as a whole and upon society. We now have a growing, a very large growing number of children who are deprived of what we would consider, at least in, in some ways, normal family relationships. And this is having devastating effects on our society. The key to understanding extreme feminism, and I'll use that phrase because, again, not every single aspect of any ideology is always wrong. But the extremes are wrong. And this idea of extreme feminism, that what I've just mentioned, that somehow those things are true. The idea that, that there needs to be total equality between men and women. Now, I'm going to, don't worry, we're going to tie all this into what Paul is getting into in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and the way that we approach that. But the idea is, is that 
uh, in our society is that there needs to be or there must be equality without distinction. That men and women are not different. That they are exactly the same in every way. Now remember that the Bible does not teach inequality of men and women. We do believe and we do know that every single person, every man, every woman stands equally before God as a person who was created in his image. And at the same time, men and women are sinners in need of salvation. Because of this, each person, male or female, has at the same time an infinite equality of worth before God and one another. And also a total equality of need for Christ as Savior. However, when you read through the book of Genesis, especially the first two chapters, and then kind of peruse through the Word of God in the way that it talks about men and women, we see that this equality between men and women is not an equality of sameness between men and women. It is an equality which preserves the fundamental differences between the sexes, which allows for the realization and fulfillment of all these differences. But again, at the same time, it affirms everything that men and women have in common. Again, as both being created in the image of God and that they are to be complementary expressions of his image. So we have to affirm two things simultaneously. Number one, because men and women are both created in the image of God, there is common equality. So again, we are the same in that sense. And that, that of course, has enormous implications for all of our lives. But also, secondarily, because men and women are both created with distinctions and as being complementary expressions of the image of God, this also has enormous implications for all of life, the family, and the church. But again, our society is so steeped in this idea of absolute equality without distinctions, we sometimes forget that we are to think about these things and what it means. Because the world is definitely wrong and it gives birth to several other things. Again, the Bible does give to us enormous amounts of freedom. But again, the freedom that we have is always uh, given to us within the bounds of biblical truth. And we need to remember that as well. We must also emphasize that because we are fallen men, when we deal with men in society and men in families, men have often corrupted their place by turning it into tyranny. And that, that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the way that men and women treat each other as a result of the curse. Francis Schaeffer said this. I think I have this quote in your notes. That's what F... Well, I don't have this quote. I have a quote later. But when you see FS, that stands for Francis Schaeffer. But anyway, Francis Schaeffer said this. He said, The mood and desire of our culture would have us aspire to autonomous, absolute freedom in the area of male and female relationships to throw off all form and boundaries in these relationships, and especially those taught in the scriptures. So basically the idea is this. Our age aspires not to biblical equality or complementarianism uh, in expressing the image of God. It is a monolithic equality, that's a term that's been used by several, which can best be described again as equality without distinction. And so without taking into account any differences between men and women, uh, Again, this affects every area of life. And we see, I guess you would say, some of the unintended consequences by those who espouse some things. Uh, because this does have a definite um, uh, foundational aspect to it in, in explaining 
how our culture has drifted when it comes to the whole transgender thing, and you have boys who say that they identify as girls and they now compete in track and field as a girl, even though they are boys, and they're wiping out all the state records, and now there's a growing number of girls who no longer are qualifying for scholarships at universities because they're no longer winning at track, and it's a growing problem. And in certain states, I think there's been at least two where they have, and I forget if it's a court case or some law, but somehow officially they have stated that they're going to allow uh, boys to compete as girls uh, in, in sports that used to be, or I guess the sports are still segregated by male and female. Uh, but basically these boys who can't win against boys say they're girls and they start winning, and we just have this mess. There's a mess, there's a confusion, there's all kinds of things that are going on. And so we have these tragic consequences that have come about as a result of just taking away the distinctions between male and female. Our society, again, has this idea that somehow that's being negative, that somehow it's derogatory to even notice that there are differences. I remember, um, this was pointed out to me because I don't, I don't really read magazines, uh, but I can't remember if it was Time or Newsweek, whenever they used to publish a magazine, uh, and on the cover... Uh, there was a silhouette of a male and a female, and it said this. There really is a difference, as if that was news. Uh, uh, but they were saying there really was a difference, and they were just dealing with the biology uh, between the sexes. So again, to deny the truth of what it means to be a male or female, as taught in the Bible, is to deny something essential about the nature of man and about the character of God and his relationship to man. Uh, and again, it has tragic consequences uh, for society and human life. So Francis Schaeffer pointed out that if we accept the idea of equality without distinction, we logically must accept the ideas of abortion and homosexuality. Now, he said this back in the early 70s. And what we are seeing today is just the natural outgrowth of all of these ideas. In other words, we didn't just, everyone knows we didn't get here overnight. How did we get here? How, how is it that people think this way? It really does begin with a refusal to no longer, with a refusal to accept what the Bible says about men and women. That's what it began with. We, our country at one time, I don't believe our country was ever a Christian nation. But I do believe that a great deal of the ideals were based on the Bible and what it teaches. It was a, clearly a borrowed philosophy for many individuals. The ideas of right and wrong came from the Bible. And so the ideas of male and female came from the Bible. It was formed and shaped by the Bible. And our culture at some point, at least individuals and leaders within, our, within various cultural groups, began to make a decision to move away from what the Bible said. And as a result of that, this is that, that, that was the beginning of where we are now. And that's important because I believe the way that it affects us and the way that we approach the Word of God. And we'll see that in a few moments. So again, Francis Schaeffer pointed out that if we accept the idea of equality without distinction between men and women, then logically we must accept the ideas of abortion and homosexuality. For if there is no significant distinction between men and women, then currently we cannot condemn homosexual relationships because there's no, we're saying there's no differences. If there are no significant distinctions, this fiction can be maintained only by use of abortion on demand 
as a means of coping with the most profound evidence that distinctions really do exist. In other words, what what, uh, Francis was pointing out in some of his works back in the 70s is that when you declare that men and women are exactly the same, the fact that a woman gets pregnant and a man can't just continues to keep cropping up and, and keeps proving that there's a difference. And so in the thinking of some, at least philosophically, the idea is how do we then erase that distinction? You may have heard this before. This is, what, this is the mantra that many people have said. My body, my choice. Where did that come from? What does that mean? Well, this is, the, this is the thoughts behind it. This is the thinking behind it. A man doesn't have to face the consequences of a pregnancy because he can always leave. Therefore, a woman must also have the same chance at freedom as a man. And the only way to accomplish this is by abortion. Now, there are many people who aren't thinking about that today, but that is the foundational thinking behind those who are pushing abortion. When you eliminate the distinctions, we have this problematic issue, a very real biological fact of pregnancy, So how can we ensure that we eliminate this thing that continues to force men and women to be different? Because the man can walk away and the woman is stuck. How do we fix that? This is how we fix it. And of course, they didn't use this language, but the idea is she can just get rid of the baby. She can just kill it when she wants to. Therefore, she now has the same freedom as the man. This is all a rebellion against God and what he said and the distinctions that he made. The idea of absolute autonomous freedom from God, uh, from God's boundaries, flows into the idea of equality without distinction. And that flows into the denial of what it truly means to be male and female. And that flows into abortion and homosexuality and the destruction of the home and the family and ultimately the destruction of our culture. In 1978, John Alexander said this, There are Christians who completely deny the biblical pattern for male and female relationships in the home and church. There are many who accept the idea of equality without distinction and deliberately set aside what the scriptures teach at this point. And there are others who call themselves Christians and then affirm the acceptability of homosexuality and even the idea of homosexual marriage. Again, he was talking about those who were thinking this way in 1978. I want you to note this. This, what he's talking about here, cannot be done without directly denying the authority of Scripture in the area of sexual immorality. In other words, for Christians, what this gets down to is the authority of Scripture. Whenever you look at any kind of list that talks about the main areas of difficulty that Christians as a whole have, it's going to include on the list the authority of the Word of God. Do we really believe that the Word of God is authoritative? Do I believe that God has the right to tell me what is right, what is wrong, and how I must live? You would think, at least some of us might think, that when a person becomes a Christian, that goes without saying. It's not true. There are countless churches who have at least a weakened view of the Bible to where they would take a very strong stand, at least in in a sense, on, on salvation, and the gospel, but when it comes to -to day-to-day living, how we interact with each other, how we interact with our culture, how we interact with the ideas of culture, that the Word of God is a very good guide, 
but they will not use it as being authoritative. And the reason why we're, I'm talking about that today is that when it comes to, again, our view of marriage, of the family, of divorce, remember that the Bible is not giving us some good guidelines. He's telling us what is, period. Which means this, and we have a hard time as Americans with this. This is our Americanism that comes out. We have a hard time with the authority of the Bible because we believe we have the right to determine for ourselves to believe what we want to believe about whatever the issue is. When it comes to many issues in the Bible, you and I as Christians do not have the right to think differently. It's sinful. It's rebellion against God. If you want to believe that men and women are, are absolutely equal without distinction, that is sinful thinking. You're denying what the Word of God says. It's not a matter of interpretation. Many people try to hide behind the idea of interpretation. That, well, you have your interpretation, I have my interpretation, and we can all just get along even though we disagree. It's going to get you in trouble. You and I can definitely disagree as to how good or bad the Georgia Bulldogs are as far as a football team. We have all kinds of opinions, and it doesn't matter. But when it comes to the family, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to divorce, when it comes to homosexuality, when it comes to identity and the transgender and all that stuff, you and I do not have a right to our own opinion. It must be formed by the word of God. It may be formed imperfectly, and we all have to continue to grow and learn and ask questions. Absolutely. But we don't have a right to our own in the sense that I determine what I'm going to think about this apart from the word of God. I don't have that right. So again, this is not a dispute over a matter of interpretation. It is a direct and deliberate denial of what the Bible teaches in this area. Some Christian leaders through the years have changed their views about inerrancy as a direct consequence of trying to come to terms with feminism and other philosophies and ideas of our time. In other words, what happens is, is we begin to get in trouble. I say I use it very generally. I don't mean myself, but, but individuals who care a great deal about what society thinks, about public opinion, they begin to run into trouble when they stick with what the Word of God says. And as a result, they become kind of worried about that. They believe they're, they're losing prestige. They believe that they might be losing the respect of, of others or whatever it may happen to be. And so they begin to work their way backwards, saying, well, we, we need, I need to change this. How do I, how do I accommodate for this? And so they begin to take a different view of inerrancy. Now the Bible is no longer um, true in everything that it says. They might say, uh, you, uh, say it's, well, it's, it's true whenever it speaks on spiritual issues. So that's how we back out of things. Now, sometimes as Christians, maybe conservative Christians, we haven't done ourselves any favor because we come across at times angry at those who are going against the Scripture. You don't need to be angry. We don't need to put other people down. We don't need to insult someone's intelligence because they, they, they disagree with what the Bible says. But we still can stand our ground. You might be accused of being insensitive. We're going to be accused of a lot of things. Just need to make sure that we're not truly that way. But we don't have to compromise what the Word of God says. And what began to happen in the 60s and the 70s is there are those, and it's this kind of, the movement's kind of grown, where the key word is accommodation. We're trying to accommodate the world. It's, it's a direct and deliberate bending of the Bible to conform to the spirit of our age at the point where the modern spirit of the world conflicts with what the Bible teaches. Let me read you a quote. It's true that some Christians insist that homosexuals can change how they feel, indeed that they should change. 
But other Christians have begun questioning that notion. And not just capriciously, but after careful, scriptural, theological, historical, and scientific study. Now we're going to look at that in just a moment. Just remember this, that views and thoughts about homosexuality and marriage and divorce and abortion and abortion find their root in our own understanding and submission to the book of Genesis. What this individual says here in this quote, and it comes out of a book called Can Homosexuals Change? that was written back in the 70s. The author really has given to us a description of how accommodation works. Francis Schaeffer says this, First, one starts questioning based on what the world is saying. So the world is saying homosexuality is not sinful, that it's not wrong. Then you look at scripture, and you see what the scripture says. Then you look at it theologically. Then you look at scientific studies, which are all over the map. And when you look at, I guess you would, you would say, legitimate scientific studies, uh, they, they clearly say one thing as opposed to others, but we're not going to get into all the details. But this is, this is what happens. So the world says something, then you look at the Bible, then you look at theology, then you look at scientific studies, until finally what the scripture teaches is completely subjected to whatever view is currently accepted by the world. So you see what the world says, then you look at the Bible, then you look at theology, then you look at science, then you go back up to what the Bible says, and you begin to change what the Bible says. The author has their own conclusions, which is this. Homosexuality is similar to handedness. That is, some people are right-handed, some people are left-handed. Some people are heterosexual, some people are homosexual. And one is just as good as the other. Now, the problem with that, it is wrong. We need to make sure that as conservative Christians that we don't treat homosexuals as somehow being different than other people. Is it a sin to be homosexual? Yes. It's also a sin to be a glutton and a sin to be an alcoholic and all the rest. We need to make sure we we treat them with love, kindness, and grace. We don't need to be angry at them. There's all kinds of reasons why they may be living the way they're living. You don't know why they're doing that. So the need for each of these individuals in these groups or sections of groups is they need Christ. Sometimes we become overly concerned with just changing someone's behavior. We want the homosexual to be heterosexual. We want the one who's living with the boyfriend or girlfriend just to get married. As long as they do those things, we want to check off a box, yeah, it's it's okay. That's not what the point is. The point is they need Christ. And when they come to Christ, those things will change. Because a true believer wants to submit to what the Word of God says as they learn what the Word of God says about various issues. But what's happened is, is that Christianity... The church is deeply infiltrated with the spirit of our age when it comes to marriage and sexual immorality. There are many who begin to tolerate these various views and in practice, if not in principle. They they view the biblical teaching on marriage and order in the home and church as quaint and out-of-date views which are culturally irrelevant to our modern world. For some, this accommodation is conscious and intentional. For many more, it involves an unreflective acquiescence to the prevailing spirit of the age. But in either case, the results are essentially the same. So again, what happens is, is we're not as reflective about these things as we ought to be. We're not thinking through them as Christians based on what the Word of God says. We're using the Word of God as being authoritative. Why is this role or why is this whole area of marriage and sexuality so important? Because the Bible says it is. It speaks in the strongest terms about those who violate what God has established in this area. 
Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then, of course, you know what the Word of God says in Romans 1 specifically about homosexuality. God condemns all sexual sin in the strongest language. It is not that sexual sin is worse than any other. To be consistent with what the Bible teaches, we must take a strong stand against every kind of sin. But we can never forget that God very strongly condemns sexual sin. And he never allows us to tone down on the condemnation of that sin. Think of it, think of it this way. For many, it's not for all, but for many that are involved in sexual sin. They're involved in sexual sin because there's this very deep hole in their life. Yes, there's all these influences from our society, but that's because those influences are feeding on an individual who is, who is empty, who's looking for something. Maybe, maybe they were abused sexually. Maybe they were abused physically. Maybe they were abused emotionally. Maybe they were missing a lot of things in their life. That happens to a lot of people, and, and, we, and we reflect those things in a lot of different kinds of sinful ways. So we, we need to be loving and compassionate. Remember that no matter what kind of sin a person is involved in, there is not one person in this world who needs Jesus more than anybody else. We all need him desperately. So again, why, is, why are these points important? Again, first of all, because God says so. God is the creator, the judge of the universe. His character is the law of the universe. And when he tells us everything is wrong, it is wrong. Secondly, God has made us in our relationships to fulfill that which he made us to be. And therefore, a right sexual relationship is for our good. If we do not follow God's pattern for marriage and sexual morality, it would be destructive to us personally and for our society as a whole. What sometimes, and actually most of the time, you're not going to read in the popular media and, and publishing world are the millions of stories of individuals who are involved in various kinds of relationships that, are, that at least we're going to say they're not biblically centered. They're, they're not married. And, and all marriages aren't perfect. Most marriages aren't perfect anyway because you have two imperfect people coming together. But the idea is that as individuals are looking for fulfillment and happiness and joy, they're still not finding it in all these other places. They have to pretend to be happy. The sadness is there are many married people who pretend to be happy as well. And that's because we're all making the same mistake. We're looking to find ultimate meaning and fulfillment in another person. And that person is not Christ. When, that, when we find our ultimate fulfillment in Christ, then everything else begins to fall in the line the way that it's supposed to be. Thirdly, a denial of God's pattern for marriage. A denial against God's pattern for marriage and sexual immorality shatters the meaning of God's relationship with his people, as we see in the Bible. Because the Bible teaches us that marriage uh, is what? The picture of the relationship of Christ with the church. So it's not just a matter of right and wrong on a human level. It's a denial of God and how he relates to his people. If we don't follow God's pattern, we destroy the true picture of what Christian individually is and what the church is. And finally, this applies in particular to the order with the family. As we've seen already, the Bible paints a beautiful picture of the relationship of a husband and wife in marriage, likening this to the relationship between Christ and the church. In Ephesians 5, verses 20 and following, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the, of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. The world says that this is oppressive. And Christians are caving into this pressure. Note this. This is not only about homosexuality and divorce. This is about the authority of the Bible. Is the Bible your only guide for truth? Those who disagree with the biblical definition and principles and truths about homosexuality, divorce, and marriage, and family, all that is in 1 Corinthians 7, are not simply Christians who have a different but credible understanding of the Bible. Some are misinformed, but many are denying the authority of the Word of God, which then is to deny the Lord's rightful place in our life, which is a denial or a rejection of Christ himself. So the reason why I read all those verses in the beginning, just a compact reading of the general truths about marriage and divorce, what is our attitude towards that and how we apply that to our thinking, to our life and the lives of others? The truth of the Word of God applies to all men and women in every culture, age, and walk of life. It is God's supernatural manual that alone reveals his mind and ways so that people may know and experience God's presence and eternal love. Remember that there's a world out there that is lost and dying. They express their lostness in many different ways. You and I accommodating the beliefs of the world to the word of God is not going to help anyone. What we need to do is stand firm, maybe find better ways to express and explain the Word of God, but we should want what God wants for others, which is we want them to experience the greatest amount of happiness and joy that they can have. Do you believe that our greatest happiness and joy is sourced in our relationship with Jesus Christ? If you believe that, then you carry with you the message of hope that the world desperately needs to hear. But sometimes the problem begins with us. The world cannot hear our message because we don't believe that the greatest source and joy of happiness in our life is our relationship with Christ. We don't believe that. We keep accommodating to the ways of the world for all kinds of reasons. And none of those reasons justify our abandoning what the Word of God says. And so we need to make sure that we are right with God. Make sure that we take the Word of God as being authoritative. That's authoritative for us. Don't just be angry because it's not authoritative for others. That's just wasted anger. We need to make sure that we get angry with ourselves. We need to loathe ourselves at our inconsistency in obeying the word of God. Ask for the Lord not only to forgive us, but to restore to us the great joy that is ours as we live in submission to, to what the word of God says. You do know that for most marriages, when the husband and wife submit themselves to the purpose of marriage, they find their marriage is pretty good. When they love each other, when they're committed to each other, when they strive to help each other, when they think about what is best about each other, when they think to help each other, when they overlook each other's uh, faults, when they try to encourage each other, when they live life together, man, marriages can be great. It's fantastic. But for a lot of people, that's not what's going on. And so when it comes to, that's what makes the marriage a source of great joy and happiness. When we're, when we're committed to the world God's way, then you will find the greatest source of joy and happiness. 
And so it comes back then to this. What is your attitude? How have you applied the word of God? Not only in your life, but maybe in the life of a friend who's struggling with divorce. I, I'll tell you right now, the answers are not always easy. And they're not always nice. But I do believe the Bible is specific. It should, it should bring us great sadness when someone is in a situation where they actually have grounds for divorce. We should be very sad about that. About all the effects it's going to have on the family. We should also be sad when people just look as divorce as a way out. Because they're not going to find what they think they're looking for. But again, too often what happens is the world takes its cue from us. And that's why the world continues to live in rebellion to the word of God. And that's why there's often a shut door to the expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to live in light of the gospel. To be full-orbed Christians, embracing the authority of the word of God. Let others into our life to see the joy and the happiness that brings us. So they would perhaps be moved, wanting to know what is it that makes us tick. And then we can say, if you just were as happily married as I was, you'd have... No, that's not what it is. It's Christ. He really does make a difference. And without him, the world really is going to die in their sin and go to hell. Father, we thank you again for your, great, for your grace in our life and, again, the truth of your word. Father, we know, and maybe it's true for all of us, we have at times accommodated the view of the world. Often, Father, we never intended to do that. Sometimes we were raised around Christians who were doing that all the time, and we never really thought about it before. But, Father, we don't want to live that way. Father, what we really want, and we do want to have deep and lasting joy. We do want to have great happiness. We want to flourish in our lives, Father. I pray, Lord, you would help us to understand that by living in submission to your word, which commands us to be kind and loving and gracious and forgiving, that we will find and experience great joy and happiness. But we also must frame our morality based on what the word of God says. And that, Lord, to realize that you've not given us these commands or these parameters to take joy from us or to take freedom from us, but to give to us the greatest freedom that we could ever experience so that we would not be in bondage to sin and to our lust, that we'd be truly free in Christ to enjoy all that you've given us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help each one of us as believers this morning to once again return to our roots and to proclaim and ask for your help to make your word authoritative in every aspect of life. But then, Father, we pray that you would help us to have a great, deep love for non-believers. Help us, Father, not to become blinded by their sin or wrongdoing. Help us, Father, not to hate them. Give us great and deep compassion for them. Help us to love them as Christ loves sinners. Help us to do all we can to help them, Father, that we may live in light of the gospel and then explain the gospel. So, Father, we pray that you would give to us this deep love for others because apart from that, Father, we will be unable to do the gospel any justice when we proclaim it because we will perceive as being angry or judgmental. Father, we love you. We know, Lord, that you have exercised tremendous patience towards us We ask, Lord, you would help us to be more like Christ in every way. Thank you, Father. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.